No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, a Navy football player describes the feeling of winning the Army-Navy game. It feels fantastic. We've just been on a, a wonderful high, and just because of all of our hard work and dedication to our program, just fantastic feeling to have both trophies back to, to where um, to where they belong. Plus, a sports book operator explains how the public's betting habits are changing. This in-game wagering piece is an important part of all of this. People are able to wager on the game within the game. And I, and I think that's going to be where the future is long-term. People are going to continue to play that way. Also, the executive director of the Celebration Bowl explains the importance of the game. These are the two Division I HBCU conferences. Because they're sending their champions to this bowl game, the winner of the Celebration Bowl is declared the national champion. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to the executive director of the Celebration Bowl, which is being played this weekend, Alcorn State versus North Carolina A&T. It amounts to the championship of the HBCUs in football. But first... Last weekend, it was the latest installment of a rivalry that goes back to 1890. It is perhaps the most storied, the most fierce, and one of the most closely contested rivalries in the annals of college football. I'm speaking, of course, of Army versus Navy, and we are joined now by one of the captains of the victorious midshipman team, linebacker Paul Carruthers. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Paul, um... You'd lost three in a row to Army. You're a senior. This was your last shot. How did it feel to pull this one? Uh, to pull this one off? Man, it feels it feels fantastic. Um, we're just it, it's still it's it's a overcast today in Annapolis. It's it's uh, rainy, and I can tell you what it's a it's a sunny day for us here at the Naval Academy, and and uh, just for the Navy uh, in general. And uh, that's kind of kind of the way we felt. It's just been on a a wonderful high and um just because of all of our hard work and and dedication to our program just so proud of our our fans so proud of our guys um just everyone coming out and support and showing love to our team and yeah it's just it's just super exciting so it is a fantastic feeling to have the trophy you know both trophies back to to where um to where they belong so it's it's very exciting you guys were down seven nothing at the end of the first quarter and then scored 31 consecutive points um <laughs> what, what what was that like uh when you were down seven nothing what were you thinking were you thinking this is uh this is gonna be a rough day no no i i think if you're a competitor you you just want another opportunity to get back out there um yeah, our, our, I think the middle game is very important. So we knew they were going to try and come out fast. One of our goals was to stop their first drive, which we did, and we did it very quickly. It was a three and out. Um, in service academy games, you never quite know. You know, it may it may seem like we would know what each other's going to do, but there's slight variations, slight changes that 
that occur. And for us, I mean, if you if you saw how we ran our offense, it, it did look different. It was still kind of the same concept, but it looked different, which, you know, it, it worked the entire day. So um, there's just, you know, after the first quarter, we made some adjustments. Obviously, we we were on the field for a long time, uh, just speaking for the defense. And, um, you know, they, they took out the whole quarter, which is something that, you know, our teams like to do, you know, control the ball, take the clock off, don't let explosive plays happen, things like that. So yeah, it just it just took some some warming up too, and and uh, you know we we the expect to win mentality did not change though. Uh, what can you say about your quarterback Malcolm Perry, who had an unusual line? He uh, rushed for 304 yards on 29 carries with two touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns, and did not throw a pass. Yeah, I think it's a, he's been playing incredible, not just this game but the entire year, and. The, the confidence that and leadership that he that he's been able to have this year for our team is is just you know breathtaking you know he 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 didn't really know his position um while here you know always going back and forth between an a back or a running back um in regular terms and then and then QB and so finally he just owned his position this year and he's done a phenomenal job and yeah I the expect to win mentality is expecting the defense to do their thing and the offense to do their thing and Malcolm is is a huge proponent to the offense doing their thing making people you know making plays just because he's he's Malcolm and then also you know the line and and the wide receivers like he he could carry all those those he made all those carries and, and open field moves because he got past the the front seven of army you know and I think there that there uh, there's a lot of people to give credit to you know just the schemes that our coaches made and and also the alignment but no discredit to Malcolm and I mean all just all of his ability God given ability and and his his confidence and mentality and his and preparation for this game. I, I think, yeah, he's, he's athletic, but the, the most commendable thing is, is, uh, his work ethic and his preparation, uh, to all games, but especially this game. Remarkable performance. We're speaking with one of Navy's captains, Paul Carruthers. He is a senior linebacker. He will soon be commissioned as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. And excuse me, Paul, I, I, I misspoke. I said that, uh, this was the end of Navy season. Of course it's not. You guys are playing Kansas State in the Liberty Bowl on New Year's Eve. Yes, sir. Um, you know, going to a bowl game, uh, ranked 23rd in the country. Uh, what does that signify for you at the end of your career? Oh, it's it's a fantastic, uh, you know, reach to our goals. So our goals, and so we, uh, our goals this year for our team, um, what we wanted to accomplish was to win the AAC championship. We were close, but losing to Memphis put like um, kept us from having control of our our future so um and and y'all know how that uh, should if it was going to be in our favor then cincinnati would have won and we would have had a chance to win the aac um but then we we didn't get that opportunity so our focus um was on army and so we accomplished that goal and it wasn't just army it was the cic right so that was our main goal was to get the trophy. commander in chief yes sir the commander in chief's trophy was to, to get that back in annapolis um and then finally to win a bowl game. So, uh, you know, we chose our words, um, 
very, very specifically, intentionally, because, you know, getting to a bowl game is fun, but the the fun part about football is winning the game, you know, and so when we get, when we get to, when we get to uh, Memphis and, you know, we'll have a lot of events, a lot of, a lot of cool, cool opportunities that we get to get to have there in Memphis, uh, thanks to Liberty Bowl um, and, and their, those sponsors and, and, and those, uh, the leadership there, uh, it's still the game, and we have an opportunity to go 11 and two, which hasn't been done but once in 120 years of Naval Academy history, so uh, Naval Navy football history. So uh, that that's exciting, you know. And Kansas State, they're a great team. I mean, uh, I was just talking with my coach today, and how they are. We're we're playing the only team that that beat uh, one of the teams in. Um, in the in the championships, you know, in the playoffs, basically. So uh, uh, I, that's exciting to me. Um, I, I they're I've I've already watched film. I've already been looking at them, and and they're a very good team. So uh, we're excited for the next challenge at this bowl game. Paul, shortly in your senior, as I said, graduating soon. Shortly after you arrived at the Naval Academy three years ago. Your father, who was a United States Marshal for 26 years, was killed in the line of duty, shot to death. How 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 did Navy football? How did that brotherhood play a role in, in the process of dealing with the grief and the disappointment and and the anger and and all of those complicated emotions you must have been feeling when when your father was killed? So much, so much. Um... I mean, right after I heard, it was not on. Right after I received the news, uh, it was not, but maybe 30 minutes um, for my teammates and my support staff and military staff to to come and 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 you know be there for me, be a shoulder for me to lean on, um, because I, it's just it's just something that I had never experienced and. And it was beautiful. Um, so it, it, I just had dudes there within, like I said, within 30 minutes. I had people calling me, texting me, um, just doing their best to be supportive. Uh, and it, it, it was amazing. And just people, you know, who aren't even on my on my team, immediate team. They were there were people from the Brotherhood, um, you know, a few years before me, um, 20 years before me. And then uh, just coaches and things like that who'd reached out and shown shown me love. So just that right there uh, was was just incredible, and and showed me not only the love that the Naval Academy can give and Navy football can give, but the love that God gives uh, on a on a daily basis to everyone. So um, me being a believer and, and having faith, just I, I saw that and was like, wow, this is this is how it is, you know, and good times are bad. You have people showing unconditional love, um, which is, it, it was incredible. Paul Carruthers is a senior linebacker graduating from Naval Academy this coming spring. His team has just beaten, as we were discussing, Army 31-7, to scoring 31 consecutive points, and is taking on Kansas State in the Liberty Bowl on New Year's Eve. Paul, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck in Memphis. Thank you very much. Thank you for your interview and, and uh, thinking my, my story is one to be told. So I appreciate that. And go Navy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. 
Earlier this year, we spoke to Dr. Rebecca Timlin Scalera, a relentless advocate for cancer patients, a former college soccer standout at the Division I level. Dr. Timlin Scalera died last week at the age of 47. Here again is our interview from this past June. Now, I'll concede, Rebecca, that the uh, sports hook uh, for our interview isn't necessarily very strong, but we don't really care since you played at Fairfield U. D1 soccer is not enough of a hook for your audience. I can see that, I guess, but it's, it's my bragging rights to my 10-year-old son. So. I, I, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's been a while. Um, <laughs> let, let me ask you, Rebecca. I, I've I've read some of the things that you've written over the last few years, Rebecca, and they're moving and they're funny, um, and you've inspired so many people with the way that you've chosen to live your life as a cancer patient and and, and fight the disease. Um, what has it been like for you to find yourself in a position to inspire people and to raise money and awareness? Well, you know, after um, my, you know, illustrious soccer career, because <laughs> I went on to uh, become a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, and actually what I ended up doing um, really after 9-11, because I was doing a lot of trauma work in the city, then I just kind of found myself in the place and the time that that was needed. I worked a lot with trauma patients um, and, and right up until my diagnosis. And what I realized when I was diagnosed with stage four cancer is that I needed to take a page out of the lessons I learned from my patients that were, had gone through hideous traumas. I mean, you name it, and I had seen it, and I'd been on the other side of the couch listening to it. And what I had to draw upon was their resilience, the resilience that I had watched um, in my patients all those years. And I thought, okay, now it's my turn. I need to put my money where my mouth is, and you either buckle under this or you put your head up. And, and I think, actually, that's where I will say that being an athlete – and having to stick it out, even when you're, you know you want to collapse, um, there's maybe something in that. I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg. If that that drive made me an athlete, or being an athlete, you know, gave me that drive. But either way, you know, it's kind of like digging deeper when you think your your tank is completely empty. Um, it never is. It never is. And I just figured out like that's a better way to live, like with your head up than your head down, because you know we don't know how much time we have left. But it sure feels better to um, go around fighting it and, you know, with your head up rather than giving into it because then it's got you already. So I, I somehow found some resilience. And the reason that I even talk about being an athlete at all is that what I want people to understand is that I was as healthy as you can see. I was a lifelong athlete. This disease does not discriminate. So sometimes it's easy when you see somebody, you know, they've lost their hair from cancer and they maybe don't look like you or they don't look that, that healthy. I'm just like everybody else. And if this disease could happen to me, believe me, it could happen to anyone. And I don't say that to scare people, but to engage people and to realize, like, if we don't all do something to further a cure for cancer because there is no cure right now. And and the reason I started with the foundation was that I realized that people thought breast cancer was like the good cancer to get. They thought, oh, you guys are all set, all those pink ribbon money. Well, no, the pink ribbon money has not gone to stage four. Once it metastasizes, I almost have more in common with somebody with lung cancer than I do with early stage breast cancer. Once cancer metastasizes outside of the original area, that is what kills you. And there's been very little research money in the breast cancer world put towards it. And that's why I want to make a difference. And so my foundation only funds research for stage four metastatic breast cancer. 
And one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. And 30% of people with early stage breast cancer will eventually metastasize. It'll be stage four and men get breast cancer too. And when men get it, they often will get it and it's already at stage four because they haven't had the screening that women do. And a lot of people don't realize that, that men get this disease as well. And 100% of the donations to the Cancer Couch Foundation benefit uh, research into metastatic breast cancer at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute uh, in Boston and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. We're speaking with Rebecca Timlin Scalera. Um, who's been such a strong and important advocate for those combating the disease and for those who are trying to find cures. Um, your message is one of great positivity and hopefulness. Um, have you seen, spoken to people who have been moved by your message, inspired by your message, uh, and, and how does that make an impact on you? I have, and you know what? Um you know, I was recently lucky enough to be on the Today Show launching this um, campaign we have going on, Reasons for Freeze in NBC, um, which was really modeled after the Ice Bucket Challenge. And we're asking people to, like, eat something cold and, and then donate and challenge friends and everything. And we have a whole website for it, reasonforfreezeinnbc.org. And it's great. And, and once I, when I was, after I was on the Today Show, I heard from a lot of women who had lost their husbands to this disease because I mentioned on the Today Show that men get breast cancer too. So like one person reaching out to me like that and saying, thank you so much for validating and for letting people know like about this because my husband died from this disease and nobody really gets it. And, you know, and then, um, you know, I heard some other people, women who are struggling with this disease and saying, I was just diagnosed a month ago and it's a horrible prognosis, but I saw you and it gives me hope. And just hearing from one person like that keeps me going because it's not easy, obviously, to to run a foundation while you're going through treatment and everything. But those hearing from people like that, that keeps me going. That inspires me, actually, when I get that kind of feedback. And, you know, what I would say to people is that, you know, no matter what it is, if you hear, if you have a diagnosis like this or whatever it is you're going through in your life, it's the middle of something. We don't know how it's going to end. And that's a great sports analogy. And that's something I got from my sports days is that, you know, until the last minute, you don't know how something is going to end until the absolute last minute of a game. And we're in the middle of life. We're in the middle of, you know, trials, tribulations, and victories. So keep going to the last minute. And um, actually, um, you know, I think it's a good way to go through life. Is It's not over till it's over. So I'm not going to give up. Give it, give it your all until the end. Dr. Rebecca Timlin Scalera died last week at the age of 47. You can find out more about the foundation she created and championed at thecancercouch.com. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And as we approach the big bowl games and the Super Bowl, it's a time of the year when a lot of Americans think about and participate in sports wagering. It is much easier to do so now legally than it was even a couple of years ago with a Supreme Court decision which allowed legal sports wagering outside of the state of Nevada. Some states have already embraced the model and are doing well with it. Others have embraced it or are not doing as well as they had hoped. To discuss some of those issues, we welcome the head of the sports book for DraftKings, Johnny Avello. Johnny, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Jeremy. Johnny, a couple months ago, I was talking to Chris Christie on Outside the Lines. He was a champion of uh, legalizing sports wagering in New Jersey and in other places. Uh, and he described it as a success story. 
particularly for New Jersey. Big picture, how do you think um, the the advent of widespread legalized sports wagering in the U.S. beyond the state of Nevada for the last couple of years is going? I'd say it's going very well. Uh, remember, now, we, we opened up in New Jersey back in July of 2018. That was our first uh, dive into sports book wagering. Uh, and Jersey's just been a huge success. Um, now, since then, we've certainly opened in other jurisdictions, some on the digital side, some on the point of sale, uh, or retail, as they like to call it, where the consumer has to walk up to the counter and make a wager. But uh, in all the jurisdictions that we've stepped in, everything is going very well. So to answer your question, I guess with one word, successful. Well, why... Um, why are some models working better than others? Is it, is it mostly about the availability of online wagering if you happen to be uh, geo-tagged in New Jersey? Uh, no question that the digital side or the mobile side is the more successful model. Uh, now, just think about that for a sec. When you, you uh, approach a state, you're within that state's boundaries, uh, you can actually download the app, you can fund it, and you're off and running run with your wagers. Uh, in some other areas, you have to actually go into a location, uh, sometimes drive you know, quite a bit of time to get there, and then go walk up to the counter or walk up to a kiosk and make your wager. So that is not going to attract the masses. Uh, that's that works because you know we've done that in Nevada for years. Um, but the the digital piece to me is the part of the equation that really gives it the springboard. As I mentioned at the top, you know we've got the big college bowl games coming up. We got the Super Bowl coming up. The NFL playoffs in a few weeks. What is this time of year like for you now that there's this new component to the industry outside of Las Vegas and Nevada? Uh, it's still hectic for me. Um, you know, those bowl games were released on Sunday, and we had to get those up as quick as possible. Uh, you know, and it took the crew a few hours. We all put our heads together and made numbers. So that's a hectic time. Now that those numbers are up, now it's just a daily, uh, it's a daily grind with the college football and uh, the college uh, basketball and uh, pro basketball. Um, so, you know, not a lot's changed for me. Uh, you know, it's still making odds. It's still... Uh, you know, uh, being in the hectic, one thing that has changed for me, I guess, is that um not really on the floor anymore, uh, and I'm not actually, you know, down with the customers. So now I'm more in an office with my crew, uh, you know, formulating odds and different. Yeah, so in that respect, it has changed a bit. Can you give us a sense, Johnny, you know, and again, it's only been under two years since um, we've seen the effects of the Supreme Court ruling allowing uh, sports wagering outside of Nevada, and we've seen some states immediately get on board. Others have plans to do so. A few, I guess, are resisting. Um, but how much bigger is the legal sports wagering business now than it was before this got started a year and a half ago? I think we're just touching the surface. Uh, you know, there, there's a few, quite a few states on board, but there's a lot more to come. Uh, some are still in the in the process of passing legislation. Some have passed. Some won't, you know, start 
until next year. Um, so, you know, we're just getting started, Jeremy. It's, you know, Jersey's a big state and uh, handles great there. And, and in other places we've gone uh, just recently, you know, in Pennsylvania and Indiana, um, you know, business has been great. But I, I think we're just uh, we're just at the start of all this. I mean, you know, we're we're probably only uh, but maybe 12, 15, about 15 percent through all the states that can possibly come on board. And at some point, I got to think that all states are going to participate. Maybe not all, but 90 percent, I, I believe, are going to. So it's really the tension when a state is making this decision about whether to legalize sports wagering, about um, the adverse effects of more widespread wagering. Most people agree if you legalize it, more people are going to do it. And at the same time, um you're eliminating or you're eliminating a lot of the motivation to participate in illegal wagering and the state will benefit because it doesn't collect obviously any taxes on the illegal wagering portion. So is that really um, the debate, the subject of the debate uh, where states haven't made a decision whether they want to see gambling more widespread and more available, which is what will happen? Or, um, you know, if it's happening anyway, let's at least make some revenue on it and control it. The states have, you know, I don't know sometimes what the motivation is or isn't for the states. Uh, sometimes they're just a little bit slow, you know, to get it going, to uh, to introduce it, to put it up for a vote. Uh, you know, so it's not everybody is, is aggressive and wants it now. Uh, some are kind of in a wait and see type of mode. So, um when they, I think when they're when they watch it and they see how it's evolving and they see how, um, you know how we really have strong compliance issues and, um, you know how we continuously try to do everything right uh, as far as whether it be some you know gambling uh, you know handling people who have problems gambling we try to do everything we possibly can to adhere to the right things to do and what, what a state would want to see. So I, I, some of those states just have been on the sideline, uh, just waiting to see how this thing goes. But if you've seen it over the past year and a half now, you can see that um, that it runs well, that it's it's fun for uh, people that live in your state. And, there's you know, there's money for the state to be made. There's also, you know, there's also very sophisticated gamblers out there that, uh, that like to play. And I know they're very happy that we've opened up in additional states, uh, you know, gives them more opportunities to play. So um, I always see it as, as fun and entertainment. And, and we, ha- we've actually done that aspect of it too. We've done last year in New Jersey, we did the Oscars and we did the Emmys offering odds on both of those entities. And um, you know, they were successful and that brought in a whole new type of wager to more I think there were more females signed up at that time than any other time on our app well it's only getting bigger uh, online wagering wagering outside of the state of Nevada and New Jersey uh, Johnny Avello is certainly uh, in the forefront of those efforts he is the uh, head of the sports book for DraftKings, which is one of the big apps on which you can wager. It's going to be a busy month for you. And then, of course, March Madness right around the corner. Johnny, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
And as the bowl season in college football gets underway, the Celebration Bowl is taking place this Saturday at noon in Atlanta. Alcorn State versus North Carolina A&T, the champions respectively of the SWAC and the MEAC, the Celebration Bowl featuring the champions from each of those two storied conferences featuring historically black colleges and universities. John Thomas Grant Jr. is the executive director of the Celebration Bowl, which is now in its fifth year, and he joins us. John, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. John, um, th- there used to be the Heritage Bowl. That was a while ago. There was even a predecessor to the Heritage Bowl, which featured top teams from the HBCU schools. What was the um, impetus for this getting started in 2015, the Celebration Bowl? Well, the, the conference uh, commissioner, uh, commissioners um, of the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, Dr. Dennis Thomas, and at that time, uh, Robert Bowles for the SWAT uh, engaged in conversation with um, ESPN Events Division leadership, uh, uh, Pete Durges, around the opportunity of relaunching this bowl game. Um, when I said relaunching, it became the predecessor uh, to what be, what was the Heritage Bowl, um, which you know uh, went defunct after about nine years, and um, they looked at it as, as, as a chance to have uh, the conference champions actually participate in this bowl game, which was not the case uh, with the Heritage Bowl because the champion from the MEAC conference, they would send their champion to the FCS playoffs, taking advantage of the automatic qualifier. And so usually it would be the, you know, the second-place team or in some instances the third-place team going up against the SWAC champion who did not participate in the playoffs because they had their own uh, conference championship game. So this game, the Celebration Bowl, it really is the championship for the historically black colleges and universities. It is It is uh, the, the championship for absolutely because, uh, you know, these are the two Division One uh, HBCU conferences. And so – because they're sending their champions to this bowl game, um, the, 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 the winner of the Celebration Bowl is declared the national champion. What kind of interest has there been in the game since its inception a few years ago? The interest has been strong, and we're seeing it uh, this year even stronger than ever before as we enter our fifth year. Um, our viewership uh, on with the game being broadcast live on ABC uh, being the first game of the bowl season and being a championship game have all added um, added to the interest and uh, um, a viability of the property itself. So uh, this year being in our fifth year, as I stated earlier, um, the, the level of enthusiasm, uh, the level of interest from, uh, corporate, from corporate, corporations who are interested in partnering and, and supporting Specifically, more importantly, the fans, um, you know, our fans uh, this year, we, we've sold tickets at a record rate and uh, viewership uh, has been strong every single year. So w- without question, when you open the bowl season with a championship game, uh, it, it creates a lot of interest nationwide. We're speaking with John Thomas Grant Jr. He is the executive director of the Celebration Bowl, which is being played at noon Eastern time Saturday in Atlanta featuring Alcorn State versus North Carolina A&T. 
And John, big picture, when we talk about HBCUs and half a century after the integration of the SEC, for instance, some of the conferences a little bit earlier, um, you know, at that time, half a century ago, um, people said, well, well, if, if the SEC and the ACC and all the big D1A, as they were called, um, conferences are integrated, the HBCUs, their football programs, are going to wither away. They're going to be unimportant. The best players are not going to choose to go to Alcorn State or Grambling or Southern when they could go to LSU or whatever. Um, that was the thinking. What, in fact, has happened over the decades? Uh, we're seeing a swinging of the pendulum. You know, players are recruited based on two things. They're recruited on the, on the fact that one um, you can be seen. I mean, television has been an integral part of the growth of uh, college football. Um, number two is that you'll get an opportunity to play. And when you can play and be seen, um, those are really key factors, um, you know, in, in recruitment. Well, that has changed um, significantly for us over the years. Um, five years ago, when we launched the Celebration Bowl, we were televising 12 games uh, for HBCUs. This this past season, this season that we're in right now, uh, we've televised 54 games, uh, HBCU games, um, a, as well as creating the stages with, with our MEAC SWAC Challenge, which is our Labor Day kickoff game, um, entering its 15th year last year, televised on ESPN, and then add to that the Celebration Bowl, which, which now coaches – can go out there and equally recruit that, hey, you can get an opportunity to play to be in a bowl game and have a bowl experience, and the Celebration Bowl experience is equal to any bowl game that's that's out there as it relates to its presentation, the experience for the players, et cetera. Um, So we're seeing now that that the quality of player that's choosing HBCUs uh, is improving dramatically, along with players who may be – who may sign to other programs, the FBS programs, but aren't getting the opportunity to play or transferring to HBCUs. Beyond football, when we're talking about the HBCUs these days, John, um, you know, we've seen so many cutbacks in terms of state funding uh, for state-sponsored, state-supported uh, higher education. Um, my own personal experience uh, going sometime, going to Grambling 20 years ago, I saw at that time how underfunded it was compared to uh, the Louisiana State campus, for instance, in Baton Rouge. Um, but there seems to be a renaissance now for the HBCUs. How would you describe the viability, generally speaking, of HBCUs now, which, which are also um, – my understanding is uh, there is a cultural cachet now attached to att- attending these schools. Um, without, without question, um, the Celebration Bowl being a big part of that, because when you can you know, provide national and, in, and last year international uh, uh, exposure, this game was televised in over 142 countries around the world, live on national television, on network television, uh, and add to that, we have more games being televised. The exposure factor for HBCUs has, has, has just grown immensely. When you create that, then you create more interest um, in, in um, people um, looking to, to enter those institutions. So enrollment across the board at these institutions are on the rise. 
not just those that are participating in the game. They're sort of leading the way. Um, when you think, you know, North Carolina A&T, just as an example, as I said, has, has appeared in three celebration bowls. Uh, last year, they had uh, over 17,000 applications, which was a record. This year, they're over 30,000 30, um, uh, applications for people that are interested. All Point State has experienced the same kind of renaissance. So the, the challenge for universities now for HBCUs is housing. Uh, they have more interest uh, than they have capacity to house students, and that's the next, uh, the next frontier for you know, university leadership is how to make sure they're able to manage that growth and, and accommodate the interest uh, in institutions across the board. Well, uh, it should be a great game. As you said, uh, two very strong programs, and they have been for a while, for a while. Alcorn State and North Carolina A&T meeting at noon in Atlanta in the Celebration Bowl. John Thomas Grant Jr. is the executive director of the bowl. John, thanks so much for joining us here in the Sporting Life to talk about the bowl and HBCUs. Well, we want to thank you so much, and we're happy. Um, you know, this year's Celebration Bowl will be the last HBCU game of this decade. And so people can certainly tune in at noon uh, on ABC. And, and, you know, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.